Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Actually, we'll read through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands... In his hands, the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. And see my hands and reach, hear your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So we're back looking at the time following Jesus' resurrection when he commissioned the apostles. you remember from last time that there was one man missing on that night. He missed that night of all nights to not be present. The apostle Thomas wasn't around. We don't know where he was or what he was doing. We don't know whether it was his fault or somebody else's fault. We don't know whether he was doing the laundry or he was detained by somebody persecuting him. We don't know the reason why he was not there. He did not gather, though, with the apostles when the news, that stupendous news came to them that Jesus was alive and had been seen. Right When the other apostles heard that, they got together and they were like, okay, we got to talk about this. We're getting reports. He's alive, right? And so they came together in that upper room. Thomas, Thomas did not. And so after Jesus commissioned the apostles, breathed on them so that they would receive that Holy Spirit, told them that they were to declare the definitive basis upon which man's sins may be forgiven or retained, they do eventually catch up with Thomas, or Thomas eventually catches up with them. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which means the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. And so they rejoice and they deliver the good news to Thomas. We have seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. And the response of Thomas is not exactly what we might expect. 
Or perhaps it is exactly what, what we expect. He is incredulous. He's incredulous. He is unwilling to believe. He's unwilling to believe that what they, they are saying to him is true. He may be thinking, is this some kind of joke? You know, is this some kind of joke? Are you mad? Have these people lost their mind? Jesus was crucified. He was dead. We, we know that. And now you're telling me he's, he's not dead. He's alive. So now before we look at what Thomas says, let it just be noticed. My first application here. Let it just be noticed that Thomas missed out on an incredible blessing when he missed that first assembly of of the disciples, of the apostles. He missed out on an incredible blessing. He was not like the others, the first group to put eyes on Jesus, risen from the dead. He didn't get that that distinguishing uh, mark. He did not hear those gracious words from Jesus about peace, at least not at that point. He did not receive the Spirit, that was breathed out by Christ, though perhaps he did afterwards. Perhaps he had to wait till the day of Pentecost. Um, he did not he- um, hear of the commissioning work that Jesus gave to them. He, he lived for seven days in his unbelief. He lived for those seven days in his unbelief. He had missed church. He had missed church. He had not heard the word preached. He had not heard the word preached the word. He had missed the gathering of God's people and he was worse off for it. We, um, <clears throat> he went... He went on in a week of unbelief while the others were rejoicing in belief like they had never rejoiced up to that point. He missed all of that. Now there are times when sickness takes us out of the worship service of our church. Sometimes we're traveling on vacation and can't can't make it work, though you should try your hardest. Worse though, sometimes we just choose not to attend church. It's like, man, it's too beautiful out, or it's raining out, it's too awful out, or I'm hungry. Um, it's, it is always a struggle for me when thinking about how often we miss work compared to how often we miss the ministries of the church. We're very, very, very scrupulous about work. We are less so about tending to the worship of God. Um, I understand that you'll be fired if you don't go to work. (laughs) I get it. That is a strong impetus to be faithful in your attendance at work. But we, but, but, you know, do we stop and think about what the consequences are of not attending the ministries of the church? Are we as concerned about our spiritual wealth as we are about our material wealth? And 
you know, as I thought about this, what particularly strikes me is that on any given Sunday, the Spirit can work in ways that are not anticipated. You know, Spirit can work and change the culture of a church in one 45-minute sermon. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen here. I've seen it happen at other churches that I've served in. I've seen it. I've heard of it in other churches as well, right? There may be a sermon that God blesses, and when, when he does, that, that the, the culture of the church can change. And if you were not there, in a sense, you're like Thomas. You're just left in your unbelief for a while. You're just left, left behind in your unbelief for a while. The hearts and minds of people change, and you, because of your absence, are not even aware that the Spirit worked. But think about your individual experience. How many times has God used the words or actions of another to bless you? Someone prays something in a prayer meeting, right? And it's just lodged in your brain. It's like, wow, why did they pray about that? And why did they use those words? And it just sets you on fire. And it bolsters your faith. The pastor says something from the pulpit on a Sunday morning and the Holy Spirit discloses to you that that was all about you. And I had no intent for it to be all about you. Sometimes I do. Not, not all the time. Not at least individually. The Sunday school teacher unknowingly says something that awakens you from your spiritual slumber and fuels you for years to come. Right? So do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Do not let anything hinder you from gathering with your brothers and sisters. Right? Do not let your thoughts about the church and her ministries, listen, do not let your thoughts about the church and her ministries go grow cold. Now, God's not going to work there. Oh, that's just a prayer meeting. Oh, it's worship. I mean, I go 50 times a week. I mean, a, a year. Do not let your thoughts about the church and her ministries go cold so that you begin to believe the lie that God works best and most often away from his bride, the church, which, as you know, is called the pillar and foundation of the truth in Scripture, the church. And so never, can I say this? Never be absent from the Lord's Day worship. Never. Just never. You don't want to miss the blessing. I mean, you don't want to miss those times when the Spirit is working. Right? Which is every time. Sometimes a lot. But you don't want to miss those. So never be absent from Lord's Day worship. Or really, never be absent from any ministry of the church without good reason. Never. You don't know what you'll miss. You don't know how many years you may have to go on struggling with unbelief when there could have been one thing that Sandy Foltz prayed during a meeting that would have been instantly answered for you during that prayer meeting. Had you heard it.
And so don't take a pass on all these blessings. Why are you taking a pass on all these blessings? I mean, it's like a feast is set out before you and you're, you want those peanut butter crackers. You shouldn't take a pass on all the blessings, nor should you disobey the Lord. We don't know what Thomas was doing. It seems hard to believe that he didn't receive at the same time the report of Jesus being alive. Something, though, kept him away from the meeting. Something kept, kept him away. And God was merciful, as we read in this passage, and gave him another opportunity, right, with his risen Savior. But he still missed the events of that night. He missed them. Now, when Thomas is told about what had happened, what he had missed, he does not believe that he is being told the truth. He doesn't think he's being told the truth. He, he says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand on his side, I will not believe. Thomas needs physical proof of the report of his friends. He cannot believe the word of his brothers. He needs to see, he needs to touch the very body of Christ, he says, or he will not, he will never believe. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he had seen countless number of miracles previously. It does not matter what works he had seen Jesus perform already. It doesn't matter with what authority he had seen Jesus preach the word Right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter what lessons had been taught to him just days before in the upper room in that glorious time that Jesus had with his men, right? Regarding his departure and resurrection and the giving of the Spirit. Jesus had died and, and he was like, and that's that. Jesus had been crucified and that was the end of Jesus. So thought Thomas at that moment. It might be that we think we would have done better. It might, it might even be that we think Thomas was in this moment a radical skeptic. Think of the others coming and reporting to him. They tell him that Jesus had displayed to them his hands and his sides. Look back at verse 20. And when Jesus had done that for the others, it's at that very moment when he shows them his hands and sides that they're like, woohoo! That's when they, it says they start rejoicing. They had been supplied with that proof and had rejoiced after it was provided. Thomas now wants the same proof. The proof Jesus had already given. He had missed it. And yet, he refuses to believe the testimony of his brothers. He refuses to take them at their word. He refuses to believe the eyewitness account of brothers he knew very well. He remains steadfast in his unbelief, even though the other apostles stand before him rejoicing and insisting and testifying and like, Thomas, you, you got to hear about what you missed. Now, perhaps some of you struggle or are similar to this moment in the Apostle Thomas's life. You struggle in your unbelief. You're waiting for the skies to open up before you will 
have assurance. You're going to you wait till the skies are going to open up before you're going to truly believe. You're waiting to be ushered into the third heaven before you change your frame of mind. You will not believe unless there is empirical evidence of God's existence. Meanwhile, God is shouting his existence all the time. He's shouting it in your face, in your ears, and he's putting it before your eyes and everything he's created. He's shouting it at you. And the words of Scripture testify to his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Evidence lies before you, and yet you want to touch and see before you will believe. In fact, you think that Christians are kind of foolish because they believe without any concrete evidence. You insist that you must put your hand in his side, but you refuse to be taught by the fact that you have a conscience that tells you what is right and wrong, that you have an eye that exists in such a structure that it cannot be accounted for by supposedly concrete evolutionary science, that you have a sense of awe when you see the sunset, that you love and experience joy and sorrow. In other words, we suppress the evidence that God has implanted in our very own creation, in the very own creation, in our hearts, and, and, and everything that he has revealed in his word. And we exclaim with Thomas, I must see the imprint of his hands and put my fingers in his side. Now, honestly, I don't think that that kind of person is very common in the churches today anymore. I don't think that's that you know people are screaming out for concrete empirical sort of God's got to stand before me before I'll believe. I'm sure that afflicts some. But why do I say that? I don't think it's a problem. Because I know how credulous we are when it comes to reading something on the internet. Right? Dude, I am duped all the time, right? I am duped all the time. How many of us raise your hands, have tried a diet, right? Or introduce some vitamin or supplement into our diets after we read some internet web page. We have no idea who wrote it. It could have been a machine. Without a body. You know, we don't know the author. We don't know anything about the motives of those writing the article. We don't have any reason to trust them. But we take them at their word, right? We just take their testimony and we're like, that's worth giving a shot. That's worth taking something that I might have an anaphylactic reaction to. It's worth it. In goes the... The ginseng, and in goes the CBD, and in goes the ivermectin. We receive the testimony of someone we have no reason to trust and reorient our entire view of medicine, the body, nutrition, longevity. How are we any different than transhumanists who think they can achieve immortality through advanced technology. 
And yet when it comes to faith in Christ, we act like Thomas. I want hard facts. I want to see and touch. I, want, I will not believe unless Christ gives me a sign in the skies or stands in my presence. And what is sad is that Christ has given you a sign in the sky through the speech of his creation that testifies to his existence. And he's given you a book in which he has laid out everything and he has furnished you with the Holy Spirit who in the, who in the end is the one who will reveal these truths to you. So demanding evidence that stimulates our senses, as with Thomas, is unbelief in the end. It's unbelief. First of all, because it's already there. And second of all, because it is to reject the testimony of those whom God sent to speak of his son, the apostles. And third, we prefer not to have to live by faith. We would rather trust our senses than live by faith. But Jesus is gracious to Thomas during his unbelief, as he is with yours, and determines to come to him in the flesh. After eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Oh, man, now Thomas gets to hear that peace, right? We talked about that last week. It was a restorative, gracious kindness to the disciples who had abandoned Jesus just hours before in his distress. That same peace he now offers to Thomas, it appears that Jesus is going through Thomas' own commissioning process right now. Then the risen Lord turns to Thomas and says, Reach here your finger. And see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side. In other words, he graciously offers to Thomas the same evidence he had given to the others. He shows Thomas his hands and his sides and then he says, And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus is telling Thomas to shake off this mindset that he had. I've got to see, right? That leads to unbelief. He's telling Thomas to stop questioning and resisting the testimony of others who are trustworthy. He is telling Thomas to be a believer. He's telling Thomas to live by faith. He says, you know, take the testimony that you've received as truth. Why didn't you? Now, how many of us, how many of us are slow to believe? Slow to believe. Perhaps you're not slow to believe the general truth of the gospel, but when Scripture says something like, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You read that and you're like, it's not so easy. You know, you're like, you're slow to believe that. And yet, you go on prayerless and anxious. You hear God speaking in the word and you turn away from it and say that God doesn't listen to my prayers or I don't deserve to have God listen to my prayers or some such unbelieving mindset as the word speaks to us. We are so, we are so often slow to believe. God has spoken and we turn from it. How many times do you do this? We turn from it and we say, maybe. 
I don't know, maybe. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And so we read the word, and yet most of the time we come away from it forgetful hearers. Just completely forgetful. I mean, how many times, again, this is me, you read a whole chapter and you could not tell somebody after you read it anything you just read. Not even a word of it. You don't even remember the conjunctions, let alone the meat. But even still, even when we hear it, and we study it, and we understand it, often we'll turn away from it, not wanting to obey it. And we're slow to believe it. We doubt that God is for us. We interpret our lives as a series of God's punishment rather than a series of God's blessings, even the aches and the pains. Why? Because we're slow to believe. Calvin says Thus it happens that when we render to the word of God less honor than is due to it, there steals upon us without our knowledge a a growing obstinacy, which brings along with it a contempt of the word of God and makes us lose all reverence for it. So much the more earnestly should we labor to restrain the wantonness of our mind that none of us by improperly indulging in contradiction and and extinguishing, as it were, the feeling of piety may block up our, against ourselves the gate of faith. Of faith, excuse me. The gate of faith. Right? We go to it and we become obstinate toward it, and then we begin to despise it, and then eventually it's just like a block to our faith. We must be quick to believe, not slow to believe. As soon as Thomas perceives with his senses that Jesus, risen from the dead, is there because he sees and he feels those wounds, he announces his faith and he says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Ryle says of the exclamation, it is the language of amazement, delight, repentance, faith, and adoration all combined in one sentence. Calvin says, on the other hand, Thomas awakes at length though late and as persons who have been mentally deranged commonly do when they come to themselves. <laughs> he's like, he's like, that's the, that's the quick ejection of, of, of praise from somebody who's like just woken up out of their stupor. Mental derangement. It is the language of someone who wakes up and wonderfully all that has recently happened turns out to be true. And it is the language of someone who has gone through a season of sin or forgetfulness of the things of God and suddenly throws off that temporary turning away. Like King David, you know, awakening after the rebuke of the the prophet Nathan. You are the man. It's like, bam. He awakens. Thomas proclaims that Jesus is what? His Lord and his God. 
And note, Jesus does not turn away from such accolades, right? He has authority and he is God. We might expect that if he didn't believe himself to be God, he would have corrected the language of Thomas. This is one of those passages that's good as that proof text of Jesus' divinity. But think of that, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. That is the confession that every Christian must make. In our hearts and with our mouths, we must believe and confess that Jesus is Lord, acknowledging his authority and being God, there is no higher authority. Right? Because Jesus is Lord, he has the authority to tell us what to do everywhere and always. We do not get to obey our emotions. We do not get to obey our pleasures, our ideas, our desires, our creativity as our highest authority. We bow and submit all those things to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I think it's safe to say that some people acknowledge some kind of lordship of Christ, but they limit his authority, right? Thinking that he is a divine man, but God, that's weird. I'm thinking of evangelicals, right? I'm thinking of, of loosey-goosey evangelicals who treat Jesus like he's a boyfriend or a bodyguard or a guru or a professor, teacher. They give him some authority in their lives, but that authority has about the same place as any person they think is cool and authentic, right? So they give Jesus some time, they give Jesus some attention, some praise, some authority, but not absolute authority, the kind of authority that God deserves, right? They might rephrase the Great Commission to say, some authority has been given to me on earth. But dear brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord and God, our Lord and our God. Because he is God, his lordship does not have any limitations at all, ever. It is our joy to learn his will and then live by his will. That is the place Jesus has for Christians. They do not pick and choose the things that give them good vibes. They do not limit his authority to a few hours on a Sunday morning. They do not give him some influence in their lives as they're about as much as their favorite sport team or banned. They do not ignore him and only turn to him when they are forced to because of their circumstances. Like they have to go to chapel at Bob Jones, or they have to, you know, go to worship. Or have, somebody's got to pray before dinner. The authority of Jesus Christ, dear brothers and sisters, is absolute. And it is our joy to glorify God in this life and enjoy him in this life and the next, right? It is our joy to be out of step with the world by the, trans, the transforming, the renewing of our minds so that we may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We do not at any point, we cannot at any point leave Jesus' authority 
out of any situation in our lives. Jesus has lordship over every single millisecond of your life. We do not allow circumstances to inform our decisions rather than the word or the will of God. That means there will be many hard things for us to do in this life that no natural man would ever choose to do, being honest when there are grave consequences. For example, having children when everybody hates you for expanding your carbon footprint. Having children, even in the church, beyond a few. Insisting to your employer that you can't work on the Lord's Day. You cannot do it. Refusing to participate in the gay marriage of one of your close family members. Rejecting other authorities who require us to break God's law. Submitting to authorities who require us of us that which does not cause us to break any of God's laws. Obeying God with our time, with our money, with our worship, with our affection, with our intellect, with our service. In short, obeying all of God's commands out of love and fear. Jesus is Lord and he is God. His authority knows no limits. And get this, he rules over us in love. Not as a harsh taskmaster. All that he commands is good. And it's meant for our good. So what place does the Lord Jesus Christ have in you? Is is he a part-time Lord? (laughs) Part-time Lord? Or is he the Lord who is God? Can you say with Thomas, my Lord and my God? I mean, very personal, my Lord and my God, right? Not the the Lord and God of the church I attend, not the Lord and God of my parents who are Jesus freaks, my Lord, my God. Jesus responded to Thomas with these words, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And see, now we see that Jesus disciplines Thomas by pointing out that he required the stimulation of his senses before he would believe. As we talked about earlier, all that Thomas had experienced and seen and especially heard from Jesus up to this point should have been ample evidence to convince him to rest in Jesus. Faith will not come via mere experience of events. Faith never comes that way. It will come from hearing and believing the word of God. It will come by hearing the testimony of those sent to give you the word of God. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? 
How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so you who are, who are tempted to seek, feel like you need to ask for signs from heaven, will not receive them. Because Jesus has written to you a book. <laughs> Jesus has given you something that is vastly clearer than some sign in the sky. I mean, can you imagine the fiasco of a sign in the sky today? Can you imagine Rogan would, would be talking about it and then all these other podcasters would and there'd be theories of this and that and refraction from the sun and, you know, radiation and aliens. And it'd be interpreted to oblivion. Signs in the sky would only be open to interpretation, but the Word of God is perspicuous. It's clear. It is the very speech of God. And it is on that basis that you believe. That is the way that Jesus himself commended. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Right? Do we merely rely on things visible to us regarding what we will and will not believe? Or do we rely on the Word of God? Really ask yourself that question. What does it take to convince you of something? Must you see it and touch it? As Thomas did the side and hands of Christ? Or when you read it in the word, are you convinced that it is the truth? Do you look to the visible world or do you listen to the mouth of God? Ryle, quoting someone else, writes, Let us beware of the danger of following our own imaginations. A man may make one demand after another till at last nothing will satisfy him. And the next step is that when he will not be content with what God shows him, he will be left in darkness and perplexity. He'll ask for this and this and this and this and this further proof when God has spoken to you. Finally, the concluding verses of the chapter. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It seems obvious what these verses mean, but stop and consider that perhaps John meant them only to connect with what was just written previously. In other words, John is not saying that there are a ton of things throughout Christ's life that I didn't write about. You can read about those in the other three Gospels. Rather, he's saying there were other interactions that Jesus had with the disciples after his resurrection. A ton of things happened even after that I haven't written down. But these three that I've written down for you, these three appearances of Christ... Those were written down so that you might believe that he rose from the dead and that believing that you might have eternal life. So this is not a statement about there being, um, I think this statement here just applies to what immediately came before. Well, let's conclude there. We'll come back to the last chapter of John, Lord willing, next week, chapter 21. And it's a, it's a wonderful passage that I can't wait to preach. 
So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you that you, by your spirit, have implanted faith in us and that we, having not seen, do believe, and in that there is great blessing. Thank you for such a gracious promise to us. Thank you for the way that it Thank you for the way that that statement helps us brush off all the accusations of us being foolish. We're taking our Lord and our God at his word. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.